action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your semi-slash-tri-slash-quad-slash-quintuple-monthly pop culture podcast uh, where we do deep dives into filmographies, historical retrospectives, contemporary films. Today we are doing part two of our John McTiernan oeuvre, so get excited for that. Uh, I'm your host Oscar Dahl, here with my co-host Matthew Knutson. Uh, This is me coming to you from Seattle. Matt, how's uh, lovely quarantined Hollywood? It's great. It is lovely. It's uh, supposed to start raining here in a few minutes, which I'm actually kind of excited for because if I'm going to be quarantined at home, then I kind of want it to be raining outside. It's a great opportunity to work your way through John McTiernan's oeuvre. This is the episode I've most been looking forward to. I, I mean, I, I, it seems like most people agree that Predator and Die Hard are probably the films McTiernan will be remembered for. But I think my fa- and those are probably his two best movies, but I think my favorite McTiernan movie is going to show up in this episode. And I've, it, it's, it's mm. never come up on anything else. This particular film has never come up in anything we've been talking about for the last 10 years. And yet it's probably one of my most rewatched movies ever. I think I know which one it is pretty fairly positive doing this exercise. You know, at the beginning, uh, I was super stoked. I, you know, th- this guy has the most interesting career for a number of reasons, not the least of which is his jail stint. <laughs> but just the trajectory here is utterly fascinating. Yeah. Once you sort of just start delving deep into why he may have made these movies or where he was just sort of in the you know Hollywood structure at the time and how he used his clout and uh, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's bizarre. And these four movies could not be more different. It starts with Medicine Man, goes to Last Action Hero, then Die Hard with a Vengeance, and then Thomas Crown Affair. Talking to people, McTiernan, you know, we've gotten into this, but he's sort of forgotten name out there, despite the fact that, you know, a handful of his films are universally beloved, and a handful more are universally known and sort of derided. What an interesting, fascinating guy. I'm excited to kick this one off with a little Medicine Man talk. Will you uh, just really quickly uh, recap for us, since it's been about six months since we talked about his first four movies? You you want to just briefly run through those four, if you can remember them? If I can remember them. Well, (laughs) we start with... uh, It's not Tremors. What's the the name of the first one? Nomads. Nomads. A really bizarre little film. And then we have Predator, Die Hard, and uh, Hunt for Red October, which as triptychs go to begin your career is is 
really uh, unassailable. This guy crushed it at the beginning and then was standing on the precipice and could do whatever he fucking wanted and then decided to do medicine. (laughs) So he goes back to the jungle for this one. I was looking it up on Google Maps. The part of Mexico where they shot Medicine Man is only about 300 kilometers west of where they shot Predator. So it must have been comfortable for him to be like, oh yeah, I already... I dealt with this for, you know, half of the budget that Disney's giving me. So this should be no problem, right? And we don't have to deal, we're not going to have to deal with a monster in this one. We don't have to deal with Jean-Claude Van Damme walking off the set. There's not going to be a bunch of like muscle-clad egomaniacs running around. Like this one should be a total breeze, right? Well, (laughs) shooting on location in the jungle, uh, as McTiernan had to have known, is never a breeze, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I do find it extremely odd that he would decide to go back to the jungle knowing what a difficult time he had with Predator and the fact that after his last three films, he could do whatever he wanted. But there are a lot of things about Medicine Man that are sort of inexplicable. This is weirdly one of the most rewatched films from my childhood. I I don't know what it was. It had something to do with the fact that it just, it landed right smack dab in the middle of like the blockbuster era where we were basically going, we were renting movies almost every weekend you know like my parents yeah. my parents were divorced and if i was staying at my dad's house for the weekend the first thing we were going to do before we had dinner on a friday night was going to go to blockbuster and just you know rent five movies and mm-hmm. more often than not they tended to be movies that that a lot of people really bristle at the idea of watching movies multiple times some people find it to be an enormous waste of time i've always been a rewatch guy even it started early it started as a kid we would just go there and you know we'd rent Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom five times over the course of a year. For some reason, Medicine Man just kept coming back into the rotation. I guess it's because it was PG-13. It felt adult, but there's nothing too salacious or it's not too violent. It's It feels kind of exotic, but it's also accessible. I don't know what it was, but I've seen, I actually have seen this movie a lot, although not for probably yeah. 20 years. I mean, yeah, I saw it multiple times as a youngster as well. I think part of it was just, you have Connery posing in the front. It looks like a fun, you know, almost Indiana Jones-esque romp. Right. Yeah, it's a really appealing VHS cover. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> um, ponytail and all. Yeah, ponytail going on. You know, back to your point about rewatchability, when you didn't have that many options and when you only had a movie for 48, 72 hours, I remember watching watching a movie and then immediately rewinding it and starting again sure. like all the time sure. but you know that was more of a, a pre-internet situation I, I used to reread books because we didn't have you know that many books available so yeah I, I think that sort of era has passed and I don't I don't rewatch things all that much these days unless it's like a Mission Impossible movie sure let's just set this up John McTiernan has conquered Hollywood at this point he can do literally anything he wants and when auteurs reach this stage a lot of times they want to do something different and that has to be what this guy was thinking he, he probably saw this as an art house movie and he even has is quoted saying this is a little art film but it wasn't really advertised as an art film by the studio and as a result it it, uh, didn't do well and uh, got a lot of uh, shitty shitty reviews but my thought is that he really just wanted to do something different and that's why this movie came to be right yeah so he's coming off of the hunt for red october 30 million dollar budget 200 million at the box office that's an enormous hit in 1990 and you know he, he talks about medicine man as being kind of like his his art film and that it was he just wanted to go make a little art movie with sean connery in the jungle and that you know that disney basically marketed it as an action movie which it wasn't and as a result people 
didn't get what they thought they were. I mean, this movie's not that much cheaper than, I mean, the budget looks like it's around 30 million. Um, yeah. Even in 1992, that's that's pretty expensive for a quote unquote art film. <laughs> Probably right around the same budget range as The Hunt for Red October, but it only did 45 million. And like you said, just got absolutely skewered by critics, 19% on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. And is basically lost to time. This, this movie never comes up. Nobody ever, you have to do a deep dive on a director like this in order to have an excuse to rewatch Medicine Man. It's it's kind of a mess of a movie. Like there's a lot of really interesting things going on, but this movie doesn't work for a number of reasons which we can get into. I think it's worth talking about where Connery was at this point, right? Because one can make the argument that coming off of The Hunt for Red October, McTiernan was at his hottest, I think you could make the argument that Sean Connery might have been at his hottest as well. Do you want to talk about 1967, you know, after Thunderball or something? Is that the hottest Sean Connery ever was? Is that the most juice Sean Connery ever had? All right, I'm with you there. But if you want to talk about maybe the most prestige or the most respect he ever garnered in the industry, it's probably late 80s, early 90s, right? He wins He wins an Oscar in 1980. Yeah, Last Crusade, well, Before that, yeah. okay, so in 87, he wins his Oscar. A very deserved Oscar as, as well. Did, that, that is not a, uh, that's not some sort of lifetime achievement bullshit. He deserved, he's fucking fantastic in that movie. Mm-hmm. Then he does Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is the biggest film of 1989, and he works with the biggest director in the world, right? And that is also mm-hmm. one of his finest performances. Huge movie, beloved film. He's great in that. And then he does Hunt for Red October with McTiernan, and that is a Jack Ryan movie that's a Jack Ryan movie based on a Jack Ryan book and yet that is Connery's movie which I think is mm-hmm. part of the reason that Alec Baldwin decided to not continue with the series because <laughs> even though he's the protagonist of that film nobody thinks of that as being an Alec Baldwin movie people people think of that as a Sean Connery movie and he's so regal and he's so larger than life and just like he's he's just there's something legendary about Connery at this point in his career and he is just firing on all cylinders he can do whatever he wants and so here's what he does after the, uh, the Hunt for Red October. He does The Russia House, Highlander 2, The Quickening, Medicine Man, Rising Sun, A Good Man in Africa, Just Cause, First Night, and Dragonheart. So yeah. he's got a big slide in the mid-90s. And you could say that he sort of comes back with The Rock in 96, and he's excellent in that movie. It's probably still Michael Bay's best film. But other than that, he kind of continues to slide for another 10 years before he finally hangs it up and goes and plays golf. Yeah, no, he's got a lot of shit and then The Rock and then a lot more shit, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, depending on how you feel about Finding Forrester. Sure, or or <laughs> Entrapment for that matter. I mean, after The Hunt for Red October, he spends about 20 years coming to the realization, not even that, he spends like 17 years coming to the realization that uh, he might be done with this. He, he put in his time, he won his Oscar, he made lots and lots of money, he'll forever be considered a legend. He's at the center of the single greatest character introduction in cinema history. And so his legacy is intact. But Medicine Man comes at the beginning of this slide. And I think it's very indicative of where things are going to go from here, unfortunately. I, I, I think that McTiernan manages to sort of right the ship on his career, if, if only momentarily. But mm-hmm. uh, but this is sort of the beginning of Conry really going into um, autopilot mode, right? He seems pretty darn tuned out here. Yeah, it's that's true, and I I, I don't think he 
he probably didn't really like the shooting conditions in the jungle. Yeah, apparently he and uh, Lorraine Bracco, I think everybody had a pretty tough time making this movie, but those two were very vocal about it in the press afterwards. What an unpleasant shoot this was. Yeah, and well, Lorraine Bracco yeah, should we just is, get into it? is, yeah, let's just get into it. She is, uh, She's a deal she gets an F grade for this movie. She is nails on a chalkboard uh, from the outset, and that is not what this role needed in any way. And it is... Uh, you know, she's she's coming off Goodfellas. She's maybe being pushed into some star roles uh, that she doesn't deserve. I don't know if this is when sort of substance abuse problems started for her, mm, right? She okay. had those. Okay. God damn, she is A, miscast, and B, terrible. And she doesn't have any chemistry, any real chemistry with Conry, right? No. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that in the editing room, they decided to excise any love story that was being captured on mm-hmm. set. Like, it, 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 it seems clear from the material that they're they're gesturing, gesturing towards some sort of love story between these two, and the penultimate scene of the movie, it even looks like they're getting ready to kiss, and then the movie very deliberately, intentionally, sort of distractingly cuts away. The script for this film was the subject of a pretty significant bidding war. I mean, this they, yeah. paid, they paid a lot of money for the script. It looks like it was red hot. Well, the bones of this movie is, you know, Sean Connery as this irascible scientist slash shaman in the jungle with a cure for cancer. I mean, that's, I, I, I can see the log line being enticing. God damn, the execution is, is, is off by a... Yeah, by a country mile. It's here. it's written by Tom Schulman, who won an Oscar for Dead Poet Society the year two years before this. Um, he also wrote Honey I Shrunk the Kids, What About Bob, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, and Welcome to New- Welcome to Mooseport. So okay. he's responsible for ending <laughs> Gene Hackman's career, I guess. <laughs> he was paid three million dollars for his script after a lengthy bidding war, pretty decent Jesus. sum. I mean, we're talking like Joe Esterhaz or uh, Shane Black money here, right? The script was rewritten by an uncredited Tom Stoppard, apparently. Mm -hmm. And yeah, basically concerns this reclusive genius botanist in the Amazon rainforest who has discovered the cure for cancer, which is a pretty good hook, but the movie never really capitalizes on it. I'd seen the old medicine man up there gathering for his juju kit. And there it was. There's only one fly in the serum. I can't reproduce it. What do you mean? None of the new samples work. And I have very little of the original serum left. That's what I mean when I say I can't reproduce it. Wait a minute, I don't understand. What don't you understand? I found a cure for the fucking plague of the 20th century, and now I've lost it. Haven't you ever lost anything, Dr. Bronx? You pass your car keys? Well, it's rather like that. Now you have it, now you don't. It also has this, what's the word for it? Preser- preservationist? Preservationalist agenda as well? Yeah, conservationist. Conservationist, yeah, it. which was super hot in the 90s. I mean, this movie comes out the same year as Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Okay. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> But nothing really works in this. It's not sexy. It's not romantic. It's not particularly exciting. It it sort of gestures towards some of the same themes as something like the mission in terms of Mm -hmm. the the white man infiltrating the the Amazonian rainforest. uh, Goes native, I guess, a little bit, although although he still brings his his, his golf clubs with him, right? Mm -hmm. So... But it doesn't really, like, there's just nothing exceptional or memorable about this, right? The only thing that stands out to me is Jerry Goldsmith's 
exceptional score. It is a really great, really great score for this film. It's it's sort of boring, and thanks to Lorraine Bracco and that you know the way that character is written, it's it's just more or less kind of off-putting throughout the movie. The relationship doesn't work at all. There, there's no chemistry, but it's also not written very well. So yeah, it just sort of plods along, and it, it, it's just a whole bunch of ends up being a whole bunch of nothing, and uh, it's not fun. Yeah, I I mean it's not surprising that this movie was lost to time and audiences didn't know what to do with it. It's hard to really think what McTiernan was was aiming for here. I mean, he calls it a little art film, but there are lots of explosions and it's pretty big budget. So I don't know if that was studio interference that they wanted sort of more McTiernan-y things from the movie and he acquiesced, but it just doesn't work on, on any level at all. I will say, I don't think it's a badly directed movie, but it definitely feels like a film where the longer the movie goes, the harder the shoot is getting. I'm not saying they necessarily shot in order, but you can really feel a sense of exhaustion and fatigue over the course of the movie. And by the woefully boring climax, really yeah. feels like they've just run out of money. I mean, the climactic mm-hmm. scene in this movie is pretty bad, and it just it reeks of budget issues, right? It feels very yeah. much like McTiernan and his guy, you know, his location manager and his special effects guys, like, all right, how much how much money do we have left? How you know how much gasoline do we have left? Like, what can we get away with? How can we do this as quickly? as possible it's just it's an extremely silly ending that that clearly or climactic scene that clearly wants to be profound and heartbreaking and just ends up looking kind of like cheap and uneventful yeah you know given the pedigree of the script and you know who knows what all made it to screen but it does seem just just reading some of the notes throughout his uh, his career the McTiernan does fuck around with the script the scripts he's given quite a bit. Like he'll he'll change major things and rewrite scenes and excise whole whole portions of the film uh, to make it his own, which makes him you know sort of a semi auteurish kind of guy. So you wonder if if just the difficulty of the shoot and being in the rainforest made him sort of get rid of some things or, or take shortcuts when shooting from time to time. That said, I'm not sure if there's anything really too salvage, given that it doesn't really, there, there aren't really any high notes, you know? Uh, yeah, I mostly agree. I mean, I'll try and put a little bit of a positive spin here. Th- things that I think work, Jerry Goldsmith's score, uh, of course, fantastic. The first scene where they go ziplining, the first time they go up into the canopy, a lot of that has to do with Goldsmith score, but I think it is the one scene that actually like, oh, this is this is working. Like we're actually there's something magical about this. Um, you know, it's the first scene where Ray sort of like falls in love with the jungle, or you know, she kind of gets it for the first time. And yeah. uh, <laughs> this is this is gonna sound really bad, but because she's so in awe of what she's looking at, she kind of stops talking for. <laughs> for a second (laughs) no that's fair oh boy so that scene works that's really fun all the ziplining stuff is cool for the most part the the way that they kind of suggest that uh connery's character dr campbell was responsible for some sort of outbreak and for the decimation of maybe an entire tribe i think is quite dark Mm -hmm. and quite interesting and i like the fact that they're not they never put too fine of a point on it they just sort of suggest it and then i also like the fact that they plant the seed of the magical ants early. I, I I had never noticed it up until this point. I mean, the last time I watched this movie, I was probably 16 years old. But uh, in this most recent rewatch, I realized, oh, they plant the idea of those 
ants potentially being the cure early in the movie because he's hitting golf balls into the jungle and the kids are going off to retrieve the golf balls and then uh, as a reward he's giving them chocolate covered ants Brocco's character keeps saying like what is it about this tribe why are they what what is what is it about their lifestyle was it about what is it about this part of the jungle where they seem to all be immune to this and it turns out mm-hmm. that they've actually been eating these ants right yeah I've never noticed that before. I, I, I didn't really pick up on that until you mentioned it just now so. and and I think the reveal of the ants like when when they finally do run the baseline test or whatever and she finds peak 37 again which i think is also a pretty cool very easy very clean this has been an effective test or this has been a failure as a test peak 37 just a really quick way to show that when she finds peak 37 again and then they go over and they realize it's the ants and the sugar that's just a really nice moment unfortunately it's followed up by a very uninspired uh climactic scene (laughs) so yeah and and i and i think connery is perfect for this role it's just he just doesn't seem particularly interested in showing up to work like he is perfectly cast and it's an interesting character unfortunately the movie wants Brocco to be the protagonist and she is not up to the task she's not up to the task I mean I just wonder how different this movie plays out if you get someone who's you know can can equal his gravitas and maybe I don't know just have any chemistry and you wonder if that would elevate Connery's work in this as well but uh, recast it I don't know who do you who do you put in there who is who is hot in 1992 who would have uh, saved this movie who was hot in 1992 I don't know Marissa Tomei uh, a Meg Ryan Okay. Julia Roberts. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's see a Meg Ryan in there. Okay. So you can't not like her. Yeah, so this movie is not good. Can't quite put all the faults at McTiernan's feet. But this is his first major stumble to this point because mm-hmm. Nomads, I think, was exactly the movie he was trying to make. Say what you want to about that movie. And actually was a, sort of a surprise hit and was a nice calling card for him. And then it's smooth sailing for him for a good 10 years up until, less than that, maybe even like seven or eight years until he kind of runs into a wall here and critical flop, commercial flop, and uh, apparently quite the difficult shoot. McTiernan returns to uh, Los Angeles with his tail between his legs. And so what does he do to get off the mat? Oh, he just makes a big budget movie with the biggest action hero in the world. Last action hero. McTiernan's only comedy, right? Unless you consider the, I don't really consider Thomas Cranefer to be a comedy. Sort of no, like. I think this is his most comedic film for sure. Absolutely. Here we have a Shane Black screenplay, even though he didn't write the initial script. That was by Zach Penn and I'm left, and they they changed it so much that they took their names off of the screenplay credit, and Shane Black had a rewrite. This makes a lot of sense for McTiernan's career. He's he's chasing. So what is he going to do? He's going to make a big budget action movie, get back to his standing as as Hollywood's most profitable action director, right? Uh, apparently uncredited rewrite by William Goldman as well. Oh, okay. So he's getting he's getting some pretty big names to do these uncredited rewrites on these films. So Zach Penn, Adam Leff, Shane Black, William Goldman, you know, how could this go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, one way it could go wrong is you fast track it to the point where you finish shooting and it's released you know, a month and a half later. Yeah, some reports say that they were still shooting up until a week before it was released. I'm not quite sure how that could possibly work in the era of shooting everything on film, but this thing was just plagued with problems in post. I mean, had apparently disastrous test screenings. There was a lot of hand-wringing about whether they should hold off, whether they should push this thing, whether, you know, at least maybe just a month to try to get this thing down to a reasonable length. And then just as a big old fuck you to uh, to Sony, uh, Universal decides to plunk Jurassic Park 
write down a week before this is scheduled to be released. And that was kind of like the last nail in the coffin. <laughs> like this movie comes out. Well, it's just, it's insane that they didn't uh, move. I mean, they were fast tracking it so they could release it a week after Jurassic Park. You know, that just, it, it, it makes no sense. I mean, this is, this is an infamous plagued production in Hollywood. Going back to the time, I remember this. I mean, it was a big story even then how uh, chaotic and unorganized this production was and how big of a flop uh this movie was going to be it was gossip mag stuff it was on et even as a kid i remember thinking you know like as a kid you're you're susceptible to all these promotions i mean a lot of it is directed towards you anyway but even as a child i remember thinking to myself god damn they're really pushing this thing hard like i see this last action hero bullshit everywhere like i i I pulled a i pulled something off of imdb trivia here merchandising included seven video games Seven video games, a $20 million Burger King promotion, a $36 million theme park ride, NASA's first paid ad in space, (laughs) and a four-story inflatable Jack Slater at the Cannes Film Festival. Schwarzenegger gave 40 television interviews and 54 print interviews in 24 hours, setting a new personal record. Bonkers. And and this the the disastrous rollout for this movie is one of those rare occurrences where the negative press sort of outstriped the actual quality of the film. Like this film is better than it was perceived to be. Even though it's yeah, you know, it's it's no great shakes, but it's 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 not as bad as as the press made it out to be. That's for sure. Hey, hot take. I kind of love this movie, and uh, <laughs> I kind of always have. I do. I do not love this. No, movie, I but. I find this movie to be really really endearing. It's a fucking mess. Don't get me wrong. It, it's it's an absolute mess, but it's one of the more fun messes. I'd say it's just one of the most bizarre, uneven, mind blowing messes to come out of the 1990s. But I rewatch this movie all the time. I kind of love this movie. I think it's really well, funny. The whole, the whole mess of it all is sort of it. It, it, it works with the premise. Right, mm-hmm. like it's almost kind of the point yeah. that it's 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 messy and weird. You can't say that it's not an enjoyable watch because it it certainly is. It's 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 fun to sit down and uh, let this whole <laughs> chaotic production wash over you. It pairs really well with one of my favorite underrated, undervalued, under-discussed comedies of the 1990s, which actually came out the same year as Last Action Hero, which is National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. (laughs) I love that movie. I quote it all the time. And it features Frank McRae playing the exact same character he plays in this film. He plays the mm-hmm. uh, he plays this the screaming Schwarzenegger's boss, right? At the police station. Yeah. Yeah, so he plays the exact same character in um, in Loaded Weapon 1, which is which is crazy to me and he's and he I mean he steals every scene he's in in both of those movies. It makes for a really nice double feature because they're both movies that are poking fun at the idea of the violent cop film that became so yeah. in vogue in the late 80s, right? Many of which mm-hmm. starred Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and it seems like the initial script was more satirical in nature than what ended up happening and maybe less funny. You know, you can see sort of the bones of what they were going for initially here before it, you know, sort of went out of control. It, it doesn't mean that the end result isn't enjoyable. Here, here's Schwarzenegger's run from basically post-pumping iron up until Last Action Hero, which he has pointed to as sort of like the end of him as the biggest most bankable movie star in Hollywood. So, sure. okay, so we get we get two Conans back to back, right? 82, 83. Conan the Barbarian, 
Conan the Destroyer. And you got the Terminator, mm-hmm. Red Sonja, which is not a hit, but I think that movie is a lot of fun, and it has certainly has a very deserved cult reputation. Commando, Raw Deal, also not a hit, but it's sort of establishing this Schwarzenegger cop persona, right? Which is one of the things mm-hmm. that Last Action Hero is... Um, is parodying. Then you got Predator. Then you got The Running Man, Red Heat, Twins. Huge hit. People forget what a huge hit Twins was. Total <laughs> Recall, Kindergarten Cop, also a huge hit. Then you have Terminator 2, Judgment Day, which just changes the game, right? Yep. And then you got Dave, which he just has a cameo in, but that movie's still a hit. And then you got Last Action Hero. And like, that's the last, that's it. That's the end of the run. That's that's the wall. Schwarzenegger finally runs into a wall. Yeah, he goes into eraser territory after that. Well, I mean, he's still got True Lies the next year, right? I think True Lies is 94. But Last Action Hero is a failure. Uh, about a hundred, $137 million worldwide box office on an $85 million budget. It sounds like the movie made money, but this is not taking into account that enormous, enormous marketing budget we alluded to earlier. I mean, the, yeah. this movie is considered to be one of like the all-time fiasco so much so that mctiernan goes into sort of a spiral and he basically goes into seclusion for a couple years after this and just sort of turns his back on everything for a while how would you judge mctiernan's work specifically on this movie matt i think it's just a fascinating movie and i think it's really really well directed and i think mctiernan does the best he can with this material i i I just think this is maybe just a failure on the script level or maybe it's just a failure in conception i don't know this this movie is at its best when it's inside the movie right the the bookend the real world you know like the world of danny madigan none of that works that's that's the worst part no, it's of the all film, pretty bad. and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it really rests on Austin. What's his name? Austin O'Brien. Mm-hmm. We got another situation. We got two movies in a row here where our protagonist is played by someone who is not up to the task, like this Austin O'Brien kid. And it is. I don't mean to. Um, I don't mean to poke at him. It's. You know, like he was just a kid, but there's a reason that he never went on to become a real um, movie star because he's pretty bad. Yeah. The movie is completely resting on his shoulders. He, he's he's expected to carry it. He's not charismatic. He's not interesting. He's not funny. The character is just sort of obnoxious and has no real redeeming value besides the fact that he loves movies more than anything, which is something I can I can certainly identify with. But he's just not up to the task, and his his it's just another like fingers on a chalkboard situation. Like every time he talks, every time he does anything, it's just it's painful there's a lot of fault for mctiernan to to take on himself here especially with this and medicine man i mean as a guy who is is known for dealing with the studio system within the studio system with doing these big budget movies like it's his job to sort of wrangle the script to make sure things don't get out of hand and cast well and he sort of failed twice in the in, in two movies in a row here yeah i mean specifically with casting Lorraine Bracco and Austin O'Brien, but also making sure the the script is on point and you know he had the you know the the ability to nix the script or have it rewritten and he did have it rewritten on 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 both both accounts. So you feel like story-wise he needs to take on a lot of the blame here for sort of the the, the chaos that ensued with these two movies. But in terms of in a vacuum directing itself, yeah, I can't lay any fault on him and he he pulls off some really fun set pieces and everything within the movie is enjoyable and fun. So it's hard to know because we weren't there, but man, I, I wish he had maybe taken his time and, and wrangled the, the studio heads in a way where he could have made, you know, the best possible version of Last Action Hero. Did you see it in the theater? I did not. Yeah, neither did I. I definitely rented it 
from Blockbuster, and this film has a pretty memorable scene that takes place in a Blockbuster video. I'm guessing I didn't see it because every time I went to the theater for a month, I probably just, just wanted to see, see Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park again. again. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was that was the issue for this movie. Uh, it was one of the many issues that this this movie dealt with. So when they go to Blockbuster, Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, and Medicine Man all visible on the shelf in that scene. <laughs> Of course. And yeah. and that's just an important scene for me because that's that's just exactly where I was spending all my time when I was 11 years old. So just <laughs> seeing a blockbuster video in 1991, 92, it's or 93 rather. Um yeah, it's just very meaningful for me. Bring, brings back a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. All right, so things I like about this movie. Crazy cameos, right? From Tina Turner as the uh, as the mayor to mm-hmm. um, the voice of Danny DeVito popping up, both Sharon Stone and Robert Patrick show up from Basic Instinct and uh, Terminator 2, respectively. Stallone. Uh, Stallone shows up in the aforementioned blockbuster scene. Joan Plowright shows up as uh, Danny Madigan's yeah. teacher, who, of course, was married to Laurence Olivier, and so she introduces Laurence Olivier's version of Hamlet, which he directed and starred in, which I think is kind of mm-hmm. adorable. Ian McKellen plays Death from The Seventh Seal yep. for some reason. <laughs> That might be the silliest idea in the entire film, (laughs) that at some point death comes out of the seventh seal and performs sort of a deus ex machina thing where he, for some reason, he knows about the ticket. He gives Danny the final clue to where he can find the other. Why why would death have any idea about what's going on with this ticket inside this dilapidated (laughs) movie theater? It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, holding death at gunpoint is a pretty (laughs) hilarious conception and yet you watch that scene and you're just like oh my god look at ian mckellen he is totally dialed in like he is completely <laughs> he, he believes this in air like he is such a good actor he's so on it in that scene even though it mm-hmm. makes absolutely no sense so this is uh, art carney's final film um god. you know art carney of course you know legendary comedic actor won an oscar for harry and tonto famous for um the honeymooners apocryphally his final words on screen were also the final words he spoke on his deathbed which are the three words, I'm out of here. Can I list you the performers on the soundtrack? Please. ACDC, Alice in Chains, Megadeth, Queensryche, Def Leppard, Anthrax, Aerosmith, Alice in Chains, Cypress Hill, Fishbone, Tesla, and Buckethead. What a murderer's row that is. Yeah, apparently that, that ACDC song that I think plays during the first big car chase which might be the best scene mm-hmm. in the movie, apparently written for this film, right? Uh, yeah, I think, I it, I think it's called Big Gun or something like that. It is called Big Gun, yeah. Uh, cast features four Oscar winners, F. Murray Abraham, the aforementioned Art Carney, Mercedes Rule, and Anthony Quinn. And it features six Oscar nominees, uh, Sir Ian McKellen, Sharon Stone, Sylvester Stallone, Dame, Ju- Dame Joan Plowright, Michael Vigazzo, and Danny DeVito. Of course, Danny DeVito <laughs> has an animated cat. Yeah. Oh, what a movie. All right, so we get it. This movie is crazy. You know, it's not necessarily a flop, but it is it is a batshit thing that shouldn't exist. But, it, you know, it, it's a notable curio in film history, I think. Yeah. And uh, something that stands out on John McTiernan's smallish filmography. So what can he do after this, Matt? He is summarily chastened after <laughs> these two movies in a row. What's the best course of action? It's to go back to the well, right? Yep. To bring back John McClane to return the Die Hard franchise to prominence after the abomination that was Die Hard 2 by the infamous Rennie Harlan. Mm-hmm. And he takes two years and comes back with Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995. You mentioned that there's a movie that hasn't come up. That's one of your favorites. I'm guessing this is the one, man. This is absolutely 
the one, this is probably one of the my 10 most rewatched films of all time. Like way more, way more than the first Die Hard. Like I'll watch Die Hard with a Vengeance three or four times as often as I'll watch the original Die Hard. Like I usually will revisit the original Die Hard maybe once a year around Christmas time. Original Die Hard is played out, you know, it's too public. It's too well known. Yeah. Oh. The real, the real McLean heads know what's up, and that's what Die Hard with a Vengeance. I want to make one thing clear because I think I think I've been a little bit, I think I've been a little unclear about this to some of my fellow cinephiles and closest friends over the years. I do not believe that Die Hard with a Vengeance is a better film. It's not a better Die Hard. It's not a better movie than the original Die Hard. I get it. I agree. I think that's empirical. Okay. I will say, given the choice, gun to the head, I would prefer to watch this one over the original Die Hard, which I do often, and I just. Find Find this one to be more fun and it is just one of my it's just one of my probably 10 favorite action films of all time and the original Die Hard is probably on that list as well but to me this one ranks higher just for my own personal proclivities not saying it's a better movie just saying I happen to like it more I think I'm more or less with you here I think it's easily one of you can make argument for the most underrated action movies of all time yes and I don't think it gets mentioned enough and it is it's it's great in a number of ways. I think the main reason, well, not the main reason, but a main reason, is that, you know, they didn't try to remake Die Hard. Like, it's a different set of circumstances. They're playing on a much bigger sandbox here, the entirety of New York City. Mm-hmm. It just, it starts with a bang and never stops. And, you know, this is my favorite trait of John McTiernan, which was mentioned last episode, which is this guy has no patience for a slow start to a movie. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. like, he gets into it. I mean, there's so many action movies, even well, you know, revered action movies that take you know 20 30 40 minutes to really get going he will never take more than five six seven minutes to just you know plant you right in the middle of things um and this movie is no exception i agree it it does have one of the i think one of the all-time great opening sequences which is sort of just like late summer love letter to the city of new york Mm -hmm. uh just real quick picture postcard stuff and just about the time just about the point you're like oh yeah new york in the summertime isn't it great oh boom explosion and right smack dab in the middle of of midtown Mm -hmm. and that's something that you couldn't get away with today for a number of reasons an explosion in new york city brings with it a lot of baggage nowadays that it didn't necessarily have in 1995 and also just logistically i don't think you could you could do that nowadays i don't think you could shoot something no i don't think steven spielberg could do that nowadays but in 1995, McTiernan, the guy who made Die Hard, had the juice to be to be like blow up a department store smack dab in the middle of New York. And, and it's not, you know, and this is not and it's not CG. Like one of the wonderful things about this movie is how much of it is practical. And it's just a big goddamn explosion that throws cars all the way across this busy street. And we're off to the fucking races. And that leads us right into one of my favorite aspects of this movie, which is that it has this really fun Scooby gang at the center of it. I mean, this is... A, this is a diehard movie. This is a John McClane movie. But in the entire diehard franchise, this is the one that relies most on a team, which I really, yeah. really like. I mean, in addition to the fact that you, you know, that it's kind of a, there's parts of it that are just a straight up two hander with with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, we keep going back to the team at the center of it. And I don't know, I can't put my finger on why it works so well, but it works really, really well. So you got this this really fun Scooby gang. You got 
Inspector Cobb, who's the boss, right? And then you got yep. Lambert, the Graham Greene character, who's wonderful. Never would have occurred to me, like, oh, we're making a diehard movie. It's set in Manhattan. Let's just throw Graham Greene in there. I mean, you know, Graham Greene's coming <laughs> off of Dance of the Wolves and stuff. You could make the argument he was at his hottest in the early 90s. But, like, why is Graham Greene in there? Because he's awesome. Uh, you got Ko- yeah. Kowalski, played by Colleen Camp, probably best known as one of the Playboy bunnies in Apocalypse Now. Um, mm-hmm. I rewatched uh, Sliver last night. <laughs> Don't need, don't need to go into that, but she also shows up in that. That, that movie came out two years before this. You got the doomed character, uh, Ricky, uh, who's great. And then you have Charlie, who's the bomb expert, right? And they are all, yeah. even though none of them have all that much screen time, within seconds of meeting these people you have a it's it's extraordinarily clear who they are what they represent and they're all great and they're all distinct and they're all a lot of fun and you also and it's a it's a testament to bruce willis's natural charisma that he establishes rapport and relationships with all of these members of this team the way they talk to each other the way they spar these guys have fucking history like and i buy all this stuff (laughs) i literally just met them we're three movies into this franchise and i completely buy the entire history of mclean as a new york cop and the fact that he's had experiences with all these people great it's one of the most heartwarming and endearing things about this movie for me is the team he wants control over him he wants control over his actions over his thoughts even his emotions sounds like you got a secret admirer john yeah maybe you'll send me some flowers everybody knows you like Pansies. Somebody arrested, somebody pissed off. Well, that could be one hell of a long list. Fuck you, Joe. See, these people don't like to work anonymously. They want you to know who's doing it to you. So this name Simon is probably not an alias. It's probably Simon or some variation. Simon, Robert E., busted in 86, extortion, kidnapping, 10 to 15. Did seven years for good behavior, released on a state work furlough two months ago. Check it. Thanks, Rick. Bob Simons was a bankrupt businessman and kidnapped his partner's daughter. He's a fuck up, not a psycho. The guy we're looking for is nuts. Well, and just the the choice to have McLean be sort of down and out, failed marriage, it lends uh, quite a bit of depth to his character, and they don't. But they, you know, they, they don't dwell on it. But you can you can see sort of his uh, <laughs> where he's at in his life in this movie, and that's reflected in all the relationships, especially with with Sam Jackson. Um, you know, I I just appreciate how how propulsive this movie is never stops, you know, happens more or less in real time. And something I think you've mentioned about this film before, which seems right, like some of the, the best use of geography within New York City yep. of any film you'll ever see. I mean, it, it seems also realistic. You're more familiar with the city than I am, but just getting from point A to point B, it all seems very true to life. Uh, and you, you can just you can just feel it. I mean, you can feel the on-location shooting and uh, it, it all, you know, it, it all just works so fucking well. It, it's exactly what you want out of any action movie. Yeah, I mean, this. I'm glad you brought it up because it is one of my favorite things about the film. This is the movie that that taught me New York's grid system, and it's so smart about the way that it uses geography. And then this is just something McTiernan's always been great about, uh, anyway. But I mean, the movie is set up to be like, hey, you like Die Hard, right? Die Hard was a terrorist taking a high rise hostage. What's uh, what's bigger than that? Oh, let's take an entire island. Let's take the you know the biggest city in the world hostage, right? It just seems like the yep. natural progression. And it's so smart about it. And it's so it's such an authentically wonderfully New York movie. And the way that it deals with the travel through the city, it, it taught me that Harlem's uptown and that the financial district is downtown, and then everything in between. And I think the movie's at its best when it's sticking within those confines. We can talk about the reasons that the movie is inferior to the original Die Hard, and when this movie doesn't work because there are places where it doesn't. It's not a perfect movie, but when it's at its mm-hmm. best is when it's being is when it's stuck, for lack of a better word, in Manhattan, and when it's playing within yeah. those confines. And one of the greatest sequences in the entire film starts at. 72nd and Broadway, which is very clear. That's where they're shooting. You could see Grace Papaya 
catty corner from there, you know, in the shadow of the Ansonia Hotel, um, to getting from 72nd and Broadway to Wall Street, 90 block idea, <laughs> figuring out a way to do that, to, how to get there in the middle of a weekday through quote unquote civilian means just sets up a really wonderful conflict for these two characters and makes for just one of the all time great action sequences in this franchise. Yeah. 25 minutes into this two hour and 10 minute movie that they blow up a <laughs> fucking subway, which would be the climax of most action movies. And they're like, no, 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 we got a, We got a long ways to go here. We're just going to go ahead and blow the. I mean, blowing up the um, blowing up the subway car is just a plot device. I mean, that's how that's how the villains that's what they use for misdirections they can get into the um into the national reserve right this movie almost kind of throws it away but it's such an extraordinarily well handled action sequence like you said it's so propulsive it's so much fun uh the way that it compresses time is really interesting the way that they manage to involve a central park in this as well it's just all great It's it's just all clicking and it's all so clean and so streamlined like there's not a wasted shot in this movie and i think that's one of those things about mctiernan's style which he just has no time for fluff you know he has no time for flab yeah what is the, what is the most efficient way to shoot this? We can shoot through a barbed wire fence. We can shoot through tinted glass. I mean, whatever's the most efficient way to get between point A and point B is what McTiernan does at any given moment. Let me ask you this about the, the story, Matt. D- does it bother you that the Jeremy Irons, the other Gruber's plot is mirrors pretty <laughs> exactly what his brother's plot does in the in the first movie? Because I actually kind of like it because, the, you know, the misdirection works and it becomes a plot point in itself in the movie. It, it, it's never bothered me. I, it, I mean, like you said, this is clearly a bunch of very talented people sort of wanting to get back to basics you know it's mctiernan who really needs a hit when this movie comes out pulp fiction no pulp fiction came out right before this when willis decided to make this movie pulp fiction hadn't come out yet and willis was kind of in need of a hit so that this was a this was clearly mctiernan and willis in a point in both of their careers they're like we kind of gotta get back to basics here right let's go back to what worked yeah you know die hard 2 was a hit but that movie's bad and it's pretty indefensible. And I think everybody pretty much agrees on that. And so it's this is horrible. Yeah, I it's, just, it so it's just a bad movie. And this is clearly them being like, all right, what worked? And how can we sort of reappropriate that? And it never feels rehashy to me, you know? And I, no. Jeremy Irons is so good. Like, nobody can contend with Rickman. And I get it. And I don't feel like Irons is really trying to do Rickman here. I mean, the fact that he's his brother just makes a lot of sense to me. And there's a really great moment where he's like, your brother was an asshole. And Iron goes stony-eyed for a second. And then he immediately agrees. Like, yeah, he was an asshole. You got his number. <laughs> and it's just, it's, Irons is clearly having so much fun here, but he's not attempting to try to knock Rickman off of a pedestal or whatever, right? He's doing his own thing. He's, he's coming right off of the Lion King. So he's at... <laughs> He's at the height of his mustache twirling villain mode, which I love. Yeah, and you know, let's not discount that uh, McTiernan cast Sam Jackson before Pulp Fiction comes out, right? Yeah. So this is right as he's exploding and uh, just good instincts to to get him because obviously he's Sam Jackson. He brings a fuck ton to the table that a lesser actor uh, you know, wouldn't have. So Quentin Tarantino told this story recently on an um, episode of The Rewatchables where they were talking about The King of New York and how after The King of New York, Tarantino thought Lawrence Fishburne was poised to become the next Marlon Brando. And apparently Fishburne's representation convinced him that he couldn't be accepting anything besides above the title lead roles, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a result, Tarantino goes to Fishburne for Pulp Fiction 
and Fishburne turns him down because it's not a lead role. In retrospect, you could look at Pulp Fiction and an argument could be made that Jules Winfield actually is the lead of that film. But yeah. but at the time, Fishburne, you know, and Tarantino was only on his second movie at that point. So Fishburne's like, hey, this is a great script. I love it. I appreciate it. But I, I can only accept leads. So his, his representation must have convinced him that because he was basically sharing screen time with Bruce Willis that the Zeus character in Die Hard of the Vengeance was a lead. So they offer it to Fishburne. He accepts it. He's cast. And then Andy Vanya, who's one of the producers, goes to Cannes to support Willis in Pulp Fiction. And then when he sees Pulp Fiction, he realizes that Sam Jackson is about to be a really big deal. Fires Fishburne and casts Sam Jackson. Fishburne goes on to sue Andy Vanya and Synergy for breach of this. Wow. Of this, um, apparently it was just a, a gentleman's, you know, just a, what do you call it? Vocal contract, handshake, handshake deal or whatever, right? So I think mm-hmm. they end up going, they settle with Fishburne eventually. But pretty clear that this is one of the roles Sam Jackson was born to play. As a matter of fact, he points to this as maybe being the character that's closest to the real him. He has said that of all the characters he's played in his life, this is the one that might be the closest to his actual personality, which I think Love is kind it. of interesting. <laughs> yeah. And his his introduction is just wonderful. It's way up in Harlem. At the time, Harlem was just such an exotic idea to me in 1995. Like you hear, you hear all these stories about how dangerous it is and, and mm-hmm. you know, how there was times in the 70s where the cops wouldn't even go up there or whatever and this movie goes to some effort to make it clear that like this is a whole different world up there and the fact that you would drop Bruce Willis with this sandwich board in the middle of Harlem it it presents a pretty provocative conflict 10 minutes eight minutes into the movie right it's I can't I couldn't imagine getting away with something like that today for a number of reasons right for sure (laughs) and apparently this was Jonathan Hensley who wrote the script they reappropriated his script called Simon Says into a diehard movie after it had been briefly considered to be a lethal weapon movie ends up becoming a diehard movie Jonathan one of Jonathan Hensley's prerequisites was that no matter what they couldn't change this scene they couldn't get rid of the n-word on um yeah on willis's sandwich board and it's it's a it's a tense scene it's still very very effective and the way the way yeah, no. the way jackson plays it his reaction to it still still works really really well no i can't imagine them doing this nowadays and it's took pretty big balls uh back in 1995 when they did do yeah. it it's necessary I mean, it's it works really, really well. It is, and it establishes it establishes a runner of racial tension between these two characters. That that is, they keep they keep referring back to it. I mean, it's not it, it doesn't go away. It's not like as soon as they start to respond to one another, as soon as they start to forge a friendship. I mean, this racial stuff conversation that continues throughout the course of the movie. All right, Matt, what what doesn't work? The third act of this movie is a problem. Yeah, it's not, it's not great. Yeah, it's not great. So the movie just runs out of steam. It, it, it deserves to run out of steam. It's been running very fast for an hour and 45 minutes. And then at some point, it just it just gets exhausted. Uh, watching it again last night for the umpteenth time, probably seen this movie 35 times in my life. Fun fact, the first time I ever watched this movie was a rental from Blockbuster the day after Ooh. I got my wisdom teeth removed. So I was no very, very high on um, painkillers the first time. <laughs> so maybe that contributed to my deep affection and undying love for this film because I was in nice. such, well, such a good place when I watched it. Well, I, I was lucky enough. Uh, my dad took me to this movie yeah. as, a, as a 12-year-old in the theater, wow. which was awesome. Yeah. Uh, P.S. Highest grossing film of 1995 crazy three million dollars more than toy story okay why does it not why does wow. why does the ending not work uh, or it's not even that it doesn't it doesn't work it's just that it it loses steam so my contention and i and i think i put my finger on it rewatching this last night is that when the movie finally leaves manhattan 
is when it starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So when they go, when Willis goes into the aqueduct and goes upstate, when Samuel Jackson goes to the Bronx to Yankee Stadium, when uh, they end up way the hell out um, on the Long Island Sound and then eventually in, in Canada, uh, the movie just loses its way. Like this movie's at its best when it's in Manhattan and they should have figured out a way to keep it there. And when it starts to veer too far off the mark uh, is when I think it starts to kind of like lose my attention. And then famously or infamously, it has a tacked on ending, which was a reshoot. You can go onto YouTube and type in Die Hard or the Vengeance alternate ending, Die Hard or the Vengeance original ending, uh, if you like, or it's, if you own the special edition DVD, I'm sure it's on that as well. But it has, it had, a, it originally had a much different ending. I don't necessarily know if it's better. I don't need to go into the details of it. You can go check it out if you're interested, but it is much different and it is Mm -hmm. uh it takes place long it it takes place like weeks after the body of this film basically suggests that jeremy irons and his terrorist group won that they succeeded that they got away with it that they got away with the gold bought a country or whatever and then willis ends up going and seeking vengeance long after the fact the ending that exists in the theatrical cut of this movie is pretty clunky but at least it keeps it in the within the confines of a 12-ish hour journey right which is which is keeping with the sort of the contained um idea of the original film that it all takes place over the course of one day if you will Mm -hmm. which is better but uh that the canada the the way he figures out that they've gone over the border the the writing on the bottom of the aspirin bottle it's a little it's a little thin (laughs) right Yes, it it's is. It's not great. Um, it's not a deal breaker, it's but it's not great. It's fine. I mean, like you said, this movie does deserve to run out of steam, and it's not a problem that is unique to this movie with some really good action movies. We've we've seen it in some recent Mission Impossibles where the third act sort of runs, slows down. But all in all, great film, great return to form, incredible action movie. John McTiernan's back. There's a moment in the police station early where um, they're waiting for Simon to call back when they're trying to trace the phone call. And uh, Inspector Cobb just leans out of his office and he just says, Ricky, you want to tell those people to shut the hell up out there? Hey, keep it down here. It's so lived in, you know, like it just, it's like, yeah. it does, all, all it's doing is it's, it's just giving you a beat before Jeremy Iron can call back but it's just one little moment where it's like god he's already so annoyed and it's just there's so much noise in this in this bustling police it, it, it has nothing to do with the plot it's just a really wonderful little character moment this movie has my all-time favorite use of the term what the fuck in the history of cinema when they're up in harlem and the guys the guy with the basketball who's uh, up the street from bruce willis and his sandwich board when he first pulls focus and sees what it says on the sandwich board he's out in the middle of the street and yeah. he says what the This movie predicted the 2016 election. It did, yes. didn't it? There's a pro-Trump joke and there's an anti-Hillary joke, which presages the 20 <laughs> the results of the 2016 election. Oh my at God. one point, at one point, a woman refers to the idea of marrying Donald Trump as a really, really desirable thing, and Bruce Willis makes a joke about how much he dislikes Hillary Clinton or how how, how caustic he considers Hillary Clinton. Oh, that that predicts that predicts that. the results of the 2016 election. I I, I think since since. Being 13 or 14, whatever, however old I was when I saw this film, I, I, I think I developed an unhealthy sexual obsession with the character of Katya, who's a uh, <laughs> bloodthirsty, cigarette-smoking, mousy European blonde, uh, which is just right. sort of on brand. I, I've since found out that she's that she's not European at all. She's actually from Glendale, but I've always been... <laughs> she's, she's a musician. She's a rock star. Uh, she's mute in this movie, but I've always been sort of obsessed with that character. I think she's so fascinating, and man, she just skewers this guy. Like, her, the introduction of that character is her slicing a guy's jugular with a scythe, which is really intense. She composed the score for uh, 
Gilmore Girls and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Wow, incredible. My single favorite thing about this movie is that Plane has a hangover for the entire for the entire <laughs> run of this movie. He is complaining yeah. about the first time you see him is uh, with his eyes closed and his hand and massaging his temples. And then at the end of the movie, he's still taking aspirin because he still has a hangover. And I just think that's just such a wonderful choice on the part of the filmmakers <laughs> that he's just complaining about a hangover for this entire movie. And it's just, it, it just, it colors the entire thing for me. I just think it's great. Uh, the next movie in his oeuvre was one that I probably would have considered my favorite or at least said out loud was my favorite just to seem more adult and mature okay. back in the day. It's certainly not the case anymore, but... Two years later, John McTiernan makes The Thomas Crown Affair, a remake starring his old pal where he got to start uh, Pierce Brosnan. Four years later, four years later, 95 to 99, right? Oh, was it 99? Yeah, 99. Remember, it, it came up during our uh, retros- retrospectating, right, but we decided right, to hold right. off talking about it. So after Die Hard with a Vengeance, McTiernan takes a little break um, to figure out what to do next. And uh, the next thing is Thomas Crown Affair. Matt, when uh, did you see this in the theater? I did. I saw this in the theater with Anna Bazzi and Megan Toner, two for friends from high school we saw it at the meridian 16 in downtown seattle opening weekend august 6th 1999 saw it loved it it made me blush a little bit i gotta be honest it was uh mm-hmm. it's a very sexy movie r-rated movie uh much pretty big departure from the uh, the original i mean the original film is sexy in its own way but it was made in a time where you had to be a little more euphemistic about things whereas this yeah. movie's just like they're just gonna fuck on a on a staircase i don't i don't know what to tell you like you know <laughs> renee russo is just gonna be topless for a lot of this movie and they're just gonna fuck on a staircase and and that's the kind of movie we're making, which I, I think it was really refreshing to a lot of people at the time, right? Because you had Pierce Brosnan, who was smack dab in the middle of his Bond tenure. And even though those movies are dripping with sex, it, they're still Bond movies and there's they're still made for everybody. You know, those movies are for a wide audience. There's certain things you can't show, can't do, can't talk about, certain words you can't use. Whereas this one, this movie, they're just like, hey, John McTiernan makes rated R films and this movie's going to have nudity and that's that's all there is to it. And we're just going right at it. And I appreciated that about it, but I have to be honest, I was definitely clutching my pearls a little bit the first time I saw it. You know, a, a big <laughs> draw of this movie was, you know, for a 13-year-old was, or 16-year-old was Renee Russo's boobs, I suppose. Sure. But this does feel like McTiernan wanting to be adult in a way he really hadn't or at least hadn't successfully accomplished you know maybe Medicine Man was was similar in that vein but a lot of his radar movies before this were sort of aimed at maybe 14 15 16 17 year olds right your your predators your diehards whatever yep. uh but this movie was meant to be a very mature film and sort of uh, blurred the lines between right and wrong, which was refreshing. And this movie was rewarded at the box office. It did really well, was very well received. You know, watching this movie the other day, I was just sort of thinking... It's a damn shame that Pierce Brosnan never really figured out a way to do more of these kinds of movies throughout his career. I mean, he is certainly a able and charismatic leading man, and for whatever reason, this is sort of the pinnacle of his non-Bond work. And he really didn't do much of uh, of of notes, you know, that was well received after this movie. It's a joke. But there's something telling about this joke, which is that this is Pierce Brosnan's best Bond movie, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because sure. with the exception of maybe Martin Campbell, uh, John McTiernan is is a better filmmaker than anyone who ever directed a Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. Like I said, he made this smack. T- he made this movie in '99, which is the same year as The World Is Not Enough. So he literally mm-hmm. is making it. He made four Bond movies, and this one is between his second and third. Apparently, because of his deal with Eon and MGM, he was not allowed to appear in a 
tuxedo in anything besides a Bond film. So the comp <laughs> the compromise was the uh, the the black tie affair that that takes place in this movie where he is wearing a tuxedo. Uh, they required him to pop his collar. If you look, he's not actually wearing a tuxedo because he has his collar open. So it's not it's not officially it's not officially a complete tuxedo. That was the way they got around it. He's he's one of the producers of this movie. This was his this was one of his pet projects. So mm-hmm. Brosnan, you know, when he was when he had a lot of juice during his Bond tenure, attached himself to certain projects. One of which was a remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. And apparently, he took this straight to McTiernan, but McTiernan wasn't sure about it. I wasn't sure if it, if he wanted to uh, to do a remake. And so he kind of waffled a little bit. Brosnan shopped it around to a couple other places. I don't know who, which other directors he took it to, but somehow or other, he came back around to McTiernan, which is fun. You mentioned it earlier. It, there's there's a lovely sort of book ending here because these guys started their career together. I mean, Nomads was McTiernan's first feature, and I believe it was Brosnan's first feature, at least his first theatrically released feature, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So it's crazy to think of them coming together to make this really, really charming, very mainstream movie, which is definitely Pierce Brosnan at the height of his powers. And I mean, an argument can be made, it's it's his single greatest on-screen performance. I mean, he is just, he is so electric. He is so goddamn charismatic in this movie, perhaps more so than he ever was in any of his Bond films. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much of an argument to be made otherwise. It's certainly true. And, you know, don't want to sound like a broken record here, but this is the kind of movie that we don't really see much nowadays, right? The, the mid-budget adult rated R film yep. uh, that is done with prestigious uh, people and has high pedigree. So it's it's interesting because it's not a straight-up action movie. It's not even really much of a heist film overall. It's sort of a mishmash of, of romance and, and quasi-heist and a little Bond action and sort of high-society drama. It all sort of works together and was palatable enough for mainstream audiences to where it made uh, quite a bit of money. I you know, I don't know if it holds up as well as I thought it might upon rewatch. There are some things that date it a little bit. One of the main things for me being the sort of schizophrenic score of this movie. Bill Conti. You don't like Bill Conti's score, really? I like Bill Conti fine, but I think the <laughs> just like the Bill Conti sort of pseudo electronic stuff doesn't really mesh well with the more jazzy Nina Simone-esque stuff in the movie. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have his score highlighted here as one of my favorite things about it. All right. You know, Bill Conti's a little bit of a controversial figure. He also has a complicated relationship to the Bond franchise. He wrote quite possibly the most infamous score in the history (laughs) of the Bond franchise when he did the score for for Your Eyes Only. Yeah. The, The main theme, like his main piano theme, I think is just wonderful and quite memorable. And the opening credits, the opening credits sequence juxtaposed with Brosnan and Faye Dunaway, who of course played the Rene Russo part in the original Thomas Crown Affair. That scene, those wonderful credits, the wonderful music, and then leading into the opening heist at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the Upper East Side, it just fills me with such a nice warm feeling. Like the, the, this movie just comes right out of the gates with such good vibes, you know? I, I love that part of the score. It's more of the like Trojan horse infiltration. Okay stuff okay. that that sort of feels off and not really does, doesn't mesh well with uh, with with the opening and like I said the Nina Simone stuff at the end well the Nina Simone thing it might be the most brilliant it might it's kind of the movie's secret weapon I don't oh, yeah. I, I couldn't find any information about what McTiernan's relationship is with Nina Simone or with that song or whether it was something he was always or whether it was Bill Conti's idea I, I really don't know I couldn't find any info there's nothing on the Wikipedia page about it but mm-hmm. that the song becomes sort of like the unofficial theme song of the movie and basically scores the the first and last you know the opening and 
closing heist sequences, and particularly the climactic heist sequence with all the guys in the bowler caps running around the museum and Frankie mm-hmm. Faison and Dennis Leary, you know, <laughs> what do we do? Yeah. Uh, start arresting people. <laughs> the climactic heist in this movie is just so charming and endearing and fun. And I and I think the Sinnerman, Nina Simone's Sinnerman has so much to do with that. I mean, it really, this sounds like a horrible cliche, but it really sets the tone, you know, and you just can't put, I mean, you, you can't put a price tag on, on a consistent tone like that. It's a very difficult thing to do. This movie wouldn't have worked if, if the, the bookend heist didn't work. And both of the heists are really quite a bit of fun and makes sense. You know, this movie is somewhat grounded in reality. And if they were really silly heists, it wouldn't work. So kudos to McTiernan. And I love a great heist as much as anybody. And, and these are, they're not gimmicky. They're pretty straightforward, but make a ton of sense. Since we're on the subject, a couple little nitpicks about the heist. Piece of trivia from IMDb. The film originally showed Crown breaking the backing of the Claude Monet painting in order to fit it into his briefcase. McTiernan later decided that audiences might be put off if they saw him in some way damage the painting. So he edited the scene so that it only showed Crown putting the folded painting into his briefcase and figured most people wouldn't catch on to the fact that the briefcase was half the size of the painting. That bothers me every time I watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, that bothered me this time too. Which is stupid. I don't know why they why they did that. Oh, yeah. It's dumb. It bugs me every time, but it's not a deal breaker. The other thing that bugs me, but I can't consider it a deal breaker because it's such a cute idea, executed in such a fun and clean way, the sprinkler revealing the Monet painting at the end is super adorable, but it always kind of bugs me. I mean, I get it. Monet painted with oil paint, right? So if you hit oil paint, with water, it's not going to run, right? Is that the implication? Yeah. Okay, so he, I think so. So he has this woman who's his ward or whatever. I think her name is Anna. Who Rene Russo thinks he's having an affair with this woman. It turns out she's actually his ward, and she's also the daughter of a great uh, forger. forger. Thank you. Uh, she's the daughter of this great forger. So she manages to forge something over the top of this Monet with watercolors, and the sprinklers wash the watercolors away, but they wouldn't do anything to those oil paints. Is that is that is that what's going on here? Because yeah, it yeah. always bumps me a little bit. Like no. Like, I mean, yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, it's a cool reveal. It's just I, I, I always get so nervous. It's like, oh god, you're gonna, you're gonna ruin this Monet with all this sprinkler water. But, but it's, it totally. I mean, I remember people like clapping in the theater the first time I saw it when that's revealed. Like it really, mm-hmm. people really respond to that. So yeah. I'll let it go. Good. <laughs> There's also a scene where Rene Russo throws a uh, painting into a bonfire, which I think is pretty memorable. That whole, the whole middle section of this movie with the sort of back and forth between Russo and Brosnan, it's sexy and it's fun. And the stakes, although they are quasi high, they, they it's a pretty low key movie, low key, sexy film, simmering film. You know, it, it kind of stays at an even keel throughout uh, between the two heists. And I, I enjoy that. It's kind of just a fun hangout movie to put on the background. It's true. You know, it's a remake. It's actually one of two remakes of Norman Jewison movies that that McTiernan has made. Uh, We will be discussing Rollerball here in an upcoming (laughs) episode. Uh, Perhaps a remake that didn't pan out quite as well as this one did. Uh, Do we have to, man? We're completists. There's nothing revolutionary about this movie. It just works. It just, it has pretty modest aspirations and it just works really well. Like it pretty much everything it sets out to do, it accomplishes. And it's just a pleasure from top to bottom. The stakes are relatively low. Perhaps this character would seem somewhat unlikable on paper. An argument could be made that he was less likable when Steve McQueen played him in the 60s. Perhaps McQueen's take was a less likable character than Brosnan's take. But this 
the way that Brosnan plays him, it's pretty hard not to like him, right? It's pretty hard not to be with him. Yeah, and I think McTiernan, it says, uh, made some changes to the script and to the story to make it to make Thomas Crown more likable, right? Sure. No, no armed robberies. A little more modesty. And yes, in the original, I don't know. The original is a wonderful movie, and everybody should see it. It's very stylish. It's very. It's really fun. And um, and McQueen and and Faye Dunaway are, are great together. There's an infamous chess scene, which is which still holds up. And is a lot of fun and then of course the windmills of your mind the great oscar nominated song which sting covers at the end of this still holds up as well but in the original he is a bank robber or at least he is um he is facilitating bank robberies he's not actually going into the bank himself but he's putting together bank robberies armed bank robberies which is perhaps a little less defensible than i mean the way i mean dennis leary who's also really really wonderful in this movie he he's, yeah. he, he sort of he kind of puts it all out there at the end he's just like if this houdini wants to snatch a couple swirls of paint i really don't give a damn you know like the stakes are so low here that it's relatively easy yeah. to just kind of roll with it right you you want to like this guy and he's not really putting anyone in in harm's way so it, it's it's kind of why it's all just a bunch of fun and the stakes are low and that's why they had to change the ending too in the original he's putting together these armed bank robberies he's not quite as endearing of a guy he's a little more self-centered and at the end of the movie they don't end up together he flies away i seem to remember the last shot of the film as the camera pans up and sees his plane and sees him flying away whereas in this one they end up together on the plane which seems inevitable right? It doesn't seem forced. It doesn't seem tacked on. It doesn't seem like a cop-out. It seems inevitable for this. And Whereas in the original, it was much more melancholy, and she basically was going to betray him. And as a result, he's like, all right, well, then I'm leaving without you. Whereas in this one, it's a little little more playful. It's a little more fun, and it's inevitable that they would end up together. Yeah, the whole thing ties up nicely. Like, her requirements for her job are sort of, she's off the hook, and so they're free to move on happily ever after. To abscond. To abscond, yeah. You know, McTiernan has said that he wrote a, a sequel to this movie while while in prison <laughs> and I would love to see that sequel man it sounds yeah. like he wrote a couple things when he was in prison he was I mean you gotta love you gotta appreciate the fact that McTiernan was still attempting to be productive even while behind bars yeah well he, got, he was in that white collar prison so he probably <laughs> club, probably had a laptop club fed everything. yeah exactly <laughs> well we will get deep into what McTiernan was doing in prison what landed him there why that all went down we, we can't talk about the next three his last his most recent well let's not call him last let's say his most recent three films without discussing what was going on in his personal life at the time. The the next and last episode of this series is going to be about Rollerball, Basic, and The 13th Warrior. And then we will, of course, overview this entire series and uh, possibly even rank these films as well. Although it seems like we've already sort of alluded to which ones we've we really respond yeah, I, to in a personal way. I think these way. will be s- somewhat non-controversial rankings. So, and we'll also uh, we'll also reveal in the next episode who will be the next subject of our upcoming oeuvre. Well, Matt, I think that about does it for uh, oeuvre part two of John McTiernan. Uh, you got anything to to say to the listeners? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting, and we want to continue doing it. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, or your preferred podcasting platform. Follow us on all the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us a line, WLMPodcast at gmail.com. If you're currently flush or want to contribute to the cause, not for the purposes of lining our pockets, but merely to help us keep the lights on at WLMHQ, visit WeLikeMovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. The site is also where you can find archives, listicles, rankings, articles, video essays, and other assorted WLM ephemera. Spread the word, tell your friends, and help us keep the conversation going. For Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knutson, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... Seven-eighths jugs of water. Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? 
we're gonna run to all on that day will I run to the rock please hide me and run to the rock please hide me and run to the rock please hide me Lord all on that day but the rock cried out I can't hide you the rock cried out I can't hide you the rock cried out I ain't gonna hide you down all on that day I said rock what's the matter with you rock don't you see I need you rock Lord 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 all on that day so I ran to the Hold on that day, so I run to the Lord. 